G'day and welcome to the second All About Occupation Seminar brought to you by Dr. Rebecca Twinley and the University of Brighton. The presentation you're about to listen to is from Dr. Nedra Peter. I won't say too much because Bex gives a pretty good introduction right at the very start for you guys, but strap in, it's, it's an epic occupational science deep dive that is thoroughly enjoyable and I took a, a, a lot out of it. Uh, again, massive thank you to Bex and to the University of Brighton for allowing me to bring these seminars to you guys in the form of this podcast. So without further ado, let's get stuck in. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. On the 3rd and 4th of September in 2015, our colleagues at Bournemouth University here in the UK held the third Occupational Science Europe Conference on Health and Wellbeing Through Occupation. I was due to go and participate, but spent the time at home with immense back pain. Two months later, on Friday 20th of November, at exactly 10.19am, I sent this email. Dear Nidra, hello, my colleague Susan Mitchell met you at the Bournemouth OS conference, which I unfortunately couldn't attend due to slipping a disc. I'm so sorry it's taken me this long to make contact, but she passed on your details, so dropping a line to introduce myself. Hope all is well in Canada. Take care, Bex. Now, two months might sound a long time to send an email after you've been past somebody's details to make contact with. I would say as an autistic person, I have always found communication can be confusing and methods such as email remove the whole kind of social cues. So it becomes more complicated. I'm also aware that emailing is the most common form of communication in my work and I appreciate it is important because it connects me to my professional network. Still, that doesn't negate the worry I feel before sending out an email like that one. I typed and retyped that email before hitting send. So then, four years later, on Friday 4th of October in 2019, which happened to be a beautiful sunny, albeit hot day, in Scottsdale, Arizona. I had just finished present presenting a conference paper with Claire Hocking titled The Dark Side of Occupation, Creation and Intent of the Concept. Some of the audience had approached me with questions and comments. The last person stood there in the emptying and gratefully air-conditioned auditorium was Dr. Nidra Peter. And I can honestly say the single best thing about attending that conference was that moment. Since then, we have remained in more regular contact and it feels like something more akin to friendship is developing. I value Nidra's perspectives, opinions, thoughts, and I have appreciated getting to know her and learning about aspects of her life. I cannot wait for the next time we meet in person as friends as well as colleagues. I would love to introduce people, including Dr Nidra Peter, in person to my team here at the University of Brighton. Of course, given the current context, that isn't possible. However, it's through this seminar series that connections can at least begin for us all. The bonus now is that I also have the opportunity to be able to introduce Nidra to those of you joining us today, as well as to make what Nidra will be sharing accessible for all those people who will access the session in its various formats after this. And it is impo important for me to acknowledge that it is with thanks to the help and support from all of my colleagues here at Brighton that I can be here saying hello and welcoming you um, who have been able to join us today for this second All About Occupation event. And on that note, I really want to thank you all for joining us. Our first seminar was very well received and all of the occupational therapy team and our colleagues 
here at Brighton are so happy to be able to host this series. We hope you enjoy this session and we feel sure it will be a valuable learning experience. And now joining us today from Canada is someone I respect, someone I'm grateful to be able to have met and someone who I continue to appreciate getting to know. Talking of which, in true reflection of the interdisciplinary appeal of occupational science, Dr. Nidra Peter is the first person in this rolling series of All About Occupation who studies occupation and who is not an occupational therapist. Nidra, I feel so happy and privileged to be able to welcome you and I look forward to learning about how you conducted your research from a lens that moves away from individual Western epistemologies, as you will discuss how race and culture has a significant influence on occupation. Nidra's session is titled Considering the Impact of Social Assistance on Occupation. Dr Nidra Peter, welcome. Please introduce yourself. <laughs> Thank you so much. Dr. Twinley for this gracious welcome. I do, after all these years and after meeting only once in person, I, I do see you as a dear friend and I hope the con connection continues and I hope to visit Brighton sometime soon. <laughs> so I will um, right now begin, I will share my presentation. So it is an honor to, for me to have been invited to present for the University of Brighton's All About Occupation Seminar Series. Um, today we're going to consider the impact of social assistance on occupation. Who am I? I am currently a research associate in Schulich Dentistry and the Faculty of Education at Western University. I'm also an adjunct professor in Schulich Dentistry. Um, as mentioned, I am not an OT. I completed my master's in child and youth health where I studied the impact of social integration on, on um, resilience for women who had lived in poverty. Um, I completed my PhD in occupational science where I studied the, um, the impact of social assistance on occupational possibilities and that is going to form the basis of my presentation today. I also completed a postdoc in integrated knowledge translation where I focused on collaborations with third sector organizations who support youth living in poverty in terms of identifying what the research priorities are from the perspectives of the community. So my research focus, therefore, is on social justice, equity, marginalization, and poverty. As you can see, I'm also a Black woman. I am a Caribbean immigrant to Ontario, Canada. Um, I have been living in Canada for over 20 years, but have strong ties to my home country of St. Lucia. I also want to acknowledge that Western University is located on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Lenapakewak, Adawandaran peoples on lands connected with the London Township on Sumber Treaties of 1796 and a dish with one spoon covenant wampum. With this, we respect the long-standing relationship that Indigenous nations have to this land as they are the original caretakers. We acknowledge the historical and ongoing injustices that the Indigenous peoples endure in Canada and accept responsibility as a public institution to contribute towards revealing and correcting miseducation as well as renewing respectful relationships with Indigenous communities through teaching, research and community service. The aim of this session is to show how occupational, uh, how social assistant recipients experience lack of opportunity and resources to make everyday choices and to have decision-making power as they participate in occupation. The specific 
objectives are to broadly understand social assistance policy, to produce an account of how people on assistance live their lives and what they see as possible in their doing, and to consider how occupational possibilities for these individuals are influenced by social assistance policies. Finally, I want to consider race and culture from an occupational science perspective. This pre presentation will consider my research from a lens that moves away from the individualized Western epistemologies and consider race and culture. And that is also to note that when I completed my research, I did not think about it in that way. It is a reflection that I've had to do um, that was there and is ongoing, but it's something that I had to go back and kind of reflect on because it wasn't um, it wasn't a significant thing in the field that I was in. So relative um, in Canada, poverty is defined in relative terms. Relative poverty refers to deprivation that does not allow the individual to carry out the usual activities expected within society such as employment, leisure, and cultural activities. One way that countries like Canada deal with the problem of poverty is to create programs which provide a monthly payment to people with little or no income. Social assistance policy involves an effort to balance the objectives of alleviating poverty and promoting self-sufficiency while remaining consistent with underlying public values about the importance of work. From, 1990, from 1966 to 1995, just to give you a history of how social assistance evolved into the way that it is, Canada utilized the Canada Assistance Plan, whereby all citizens were entitled to a base level of benefits based on a model of social citizenship. During the 1980s and 1990s, neoliberalism began to inform social policy, leading to vast economic and political changes to the welfare system. Neoliberalism is an ideology that privileges individuals as responsible, independent, self-reliant, and self-sufficient, and therefore should refuse public or social interventions in their life. After 1996, the Canadian welfare system was transformed, so entitlement became contingent on labor market attachment. The state no longer was obligated to defend the rights of the poor and disadvantaged or promote greater equality. Instead, social assistance was redesigned as a means of social control intended to integrate recipients within the frameworks and values of the free market. Each province became responsible for social assistance. And as I live in Ontario, I will focus on Ontario, which created Ontario Works and the Ontario Disability Support Program. Ontario Works, or OW as I may refer to it, was implemented by the Harris government um, and it's a compulsory workforce program that focuses on rapidly matching recipients to available local jobs. It provides financial assistance, including income to support based costs of basic needs like food, clothing, shelter, and health benefits for clients and their family. It also provides employment assistance, which can include workshops, job counseling, job specific training, and access to basic education. Ontario Disability Support Program, ODSP, provides income and employment supports to people who qualify as living with a disability. Um, it provides them income support and employment supports. However, there is no obligation to engage in any job training activities. So my research considered how the occupational possibilities for these individuals are influenced by social assistance policy. La Liberté Rudman proposes that social and political processes shape expectations and possibilities for occupations. These forces differently shape marginalized populations by influencing what these populations view as what they sh can and should do in everyday life, which then produces occupational inequities. 
thereby occupational possibilities refer to the occupations that are supported and promoted by various aspects of the broader systems and structures in which people live. My research um, was a critical narrative analysis, and because I'm, I'm going to be using some of the narratives, I will introduce who my research participants were. We had Shelley, who was between 25 and 30 and had been receiving ODSP from, from um, the age of 18. She's diagnosed with Frederick's ataxia, an autosomal recessive inherited disease that causes progressive damage to the nervous system. When I first interviewed her, she was living at home with her mother and brother, but subsequently moved to an independent living facility. So this facility supports them with um, with cooking um, and getting into bed and certain activities that they're not able to, but then they still able to have a sense of independence. Rachel was between the ages of 45 to 50, who had a stroke 10 years prior to the study and experienced paralysis on the left side of her body. She was a mother of two, one of which lived with her and because of his age was considered her dependent. Jacob was between the ages of 45 to 50 and he was living with multiple sclerosis. So he was di diagnosed later in life and had been working full time up until then. So therefore he was receiving income from um, the Canada Pension Plan along with ODSP. And he lived with his sister and otherwise had no dependents. Hannah was between the ages of 25 to 30. She had re was receiving OW on and off for approximately six years and um, lived alone after receiving subsidized housing after being on the wait list for 10 years. Ari, on the other hand, was a mother of four, and she had been receiving OW for approximately 10 years. She also lived um, in subsidized housing with her children, but she received it after four, six months. Her weight was expedited due to her pregnancy and other health-related concerns, and also due to the fact that she had children. Another way that I looked at my research was the to using Batchy's what is a problem represented to be um, methodology. I used it to analyze social assistance policy as it was intended to critically examine how problems, social, social issues are present in public policy. Public policy is defined as a broad framework of ideas and values within which decisions are taken and actions or inactions are pursued by governments in relation to some issue or problem. The WPR approach was first presented by Carol Batchy in 1999 to provide insights into the ways women's inequity inequality has been understood in Western policy interventions and the implications for feminist theories. This approach proposes that um, it draws upon the conception of critical discourse analysis described by Foucault. Batchy contends that to uncover deep-seated propositions entails recognizing that policies are elaborated in discourse. So in drawing on Foucault, Batchy understands power as Productive, as productive, as well as embedded in knowledge power relationships. Therefore, according to Bachi, it is useful to think about both the power of discourses to limit the meanings of topics on analysis and the power to make and or to deploy discourses. Through governmental practices and programs and the construction of policy, uneven power relations are created in the production of discourse. Although there may be many competing constructions of a problem, governments are said to play a privileged role through their creation of policy problems because their understandings of the problem stick and are constituted in the mechanisms used to govern. So, Thinking of social assistance policy, what is the problem represented to be? Neoliberalism highlighted the notion of the deserving poor. So that was a group unable to contribute to the economic system and in need of ongoing income support. 
versus the undeserving poor um, who were able-bodied persons who do not work and hence are to blame for their poverty. The difference between a binary distinctions of poor person is rooted in ableness and employability. Ableness and employability have become important conditions of full citizenship and participation in society. The deserving poor are those who cannot be blamed for their poverty and their inability to, to contribute to the economic system. So with ODSP in that case, because they're living with a disability. Their impoverishment is not due to individual behavior or character flaws, but rather to structural or macro forces well outside of an individual's control. On the other hand, employable citizens who choose not to work are therefore responsible for their poverty and are not deserving or entitled to support from the government without restrictions. So the undeserving are can receive a basic level of support, but only by abiding by rules and regulations set out by the social assistance poverty. OW, Ontario Works, became a compulsory workforce program that focused on rapidly matching recipients to available local jobs. Individuals who are able to work must also sign a contract called a participation agreement as a condition of receiving social assistance. Um, so through the participation agreement, they 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 agree to engage in a certain number of job seeking activities or apply for a certain number of jobs per month as a condition of receiving income for that month. Um, on the other hand, to qualify for ODSP, a medical professional verifies that the application is unable to the applicant is unable to work and therefore they're deserving of support. Um, so ODSP recipients are not required to sign a participation agreement. The distinction between deserving and undeserving is also present in the distribution of financial assistance. Although meager, ODSP recipients receive higher income than OW. But how deserving are the deserving poor? While people with disabilities are considered the deserving, sorry, the deserving poor, critical analysis of ODSP policies point to similar shortcomings, such as insufficient benefits, increasingly restrictive eligibility criteria, a host of rules regulating individuals' lives, and a complete violation of dignity and rights of people living with disabilities. So now that you, we understand that you've represented the, the problem as who's deserving and who's not deserving, how is it reflected in social assistance policy? Through several ways, inadequate income, lack of control and choice, restriction to savings and ownership, and clawback and its drawbacks. So recipients are forced to survive on minimal income, which dwindles with inflation on cost of living in Ontario. This process makes it difficult for a person to save, limiting the ability to become self-sufficient. By the way, Toronto, where I live, has become one of the most unaffordable <laughs> cities in the world. So social assistance earnings leave recipients well below any recognized measure of poverty. Overall, restrictions on gifts, assets, and other income do not allow welfare recipients to build a financial safety net. The basic income gap remains largest for single, employable, or as they're framed, undeserving recipients who must draw on other resor resources, which is mainly their wage earning capabilities. The main discourse of inadequate income concerned the inconsideration of inflation. For ODSP participants, the incomplete coverage of medical expenses was a common complaint. Some participants described their lives as full of compromising, sacrificing one necessity for another. Hannah felt that despite receiving OW, her life was a struggle. In her words, I just wish they could make it more possible for people to be able to live instead of just survive on it, right? Because once you get a W, most people just kind of survive with rent and food and other stuff for the month, and that's it. 
compared to be able to live. I understand they don't want you to be on it forever, but they can make it accessible to the point where you don't have to struggle while you're on it. Because when you're off it, it's still a struggle. Social assistance policies also act as a, a method of, social, of control and discipline based on the underpinnings that support workfare and which assume welfare recipients to be lazy, unmotivated, and lacking a proper work ethic. The implication that an active citizen is one who exercises their rights and responsibilities in a balanced way has the potential to blame poverty, justifying exclusion rather than inclusion. Representations of, an, of the unemployed as inactive function to blame poverty as a consequence of individual failure to self-manage and find employment. The responsibility falls on the individual to resist this categorization by finding all means necessary to survive, relying on the state only as a last resort. So conceptualizing someone as inactive and unworthy and unmotivated seems to give the government and policymakers permission to exert much more control over the lives of these individuals, as well as produces value statements about the worth of their lives and contributions to society. One aspect of lack of choice more specific to OW related to the requirement of the participation agreement, leading to limited choices in vocation and education. Hannah constantly had to participate in vocational training or educational programs that she was not interested in in order to continue receiving an income from OW. As she says, we always did the things that the staff wanted us to do instead of doing things that we were interested in. Participants also discuss their inability to own a house or have any significant trade savings. Jacob described the stress he endured when having to explain that he gave up the house that he had previously owned so that he could live in the more accessible city of Toronto. They kept asking him, so where's that money from selling the house? He had to explain, I didn't sell the house, I just left. I left it for his, pre he left it for his previous partner. Participants also described how strict caseworkers were with extra incomes in bank statements. For example, Aria being asked for a letter from a friend verifying that the extra $300 that was in her bank statement was sent to her as a gift. ODSP, it's like what they give you, they want you to survive on that. They don't want you to do nothing. They don't want you to go anywhere. It's almost like they are helping you out financially and they take control of your life because you can't have nothing. If they know you have money in the bank, they don't give you any money. So clawback is the recovery of money already dispersed and it's, it's actually reflected in an income exemption policy. So in the OW and ODSP program, you can earn up to 200 a month without having any of your income support reduced. So if you're entitled to $600, you can earn $200 and then you keep your 800. If you earn more than 200, half of the remaining earnings will be subtracted from the income support you receive that month. Clawback arose as a significant complaint among participants and in some cases as a deterrent to working. The most significant impact was on Aria, who lost her support for several months due to her not reporting some of her work. Her OW worker became upset when he saw this unreported income on her notice of assessment and automatically canceled her support after charging her with an overpayment, as in she had to pay back what they gave her that was over the amount that she was supposed to have. Um, so for the next several months, Aria struggled with making enough income through her part-time job, credit card, and loans from friends. From an ODSP perspective, working and potentially making too much money to qualify would mean losing additional benefits which are necessary to survive. So Shelly had this concern that she wouldn't be able to get these other things. As she said, there are other things you could... so. 
You make that money, but how are you going to afford to pay for your chair? How are you going to afford to pay for continent supplies? Are you going to afford a Metro Pass? All of these things are extra that are covered that is not included in the income that ODSP gives you. They pay for things that I would not be able to afford. I wouldn't be able to afford my chair. Now focusing on clawback or the income exemption policy. What presupposition or assumptions underlie this representation of the, the, this problem? So several policies were put into place to ensure that receiving OW was temporary and that employable individuals get back to work as soon as possible. The income exemption policy is founded on the belief that people living in poverty are not motivated to work and that recipients will not take initiatives to find work without incentives. On the other hand, the income which a recipient is entitled to is determined by the government. It does not allow individuals to be financially secure or acquire any savings, and therefore assumes that financial restrictions are necessary to decrease reliance on social assistance. So, increasing... Increasing labor force attachment and thereby decreasing state dependency was the main proposition for clawback policies. The income exemption policy was developed from the Supports to Employment Program, an initiative where working welfare recipients can keep a portion of their employment income through a variety of earning exemptions. This financial initiative was created as a way to encourage recipients to find employment without immediately facing a full reduction of benefits. The program also removed economic disincentive to employment within the social assistance. So in effect, you could also work, potentially increasing your net income while gaining valuable work experience, which they may use to acquire more full-time employment. Earning exemptions have been described as particularly effective at encouraging part-time employment, which helps maintain basic job skills and provides access to information on future employment opportunities. The policy therefore assumes that recipients may therefore be more motivated to work as they gain additional income as well as skills that they may leverage for full-time employment, which would then move them out of poverty. In actuality, the intent of the income exemption um, policy was to decrease welfare rules and reduce government expenditures. Regardless, the assumption of clawback policy was that within, with incentives that minimally penalize gaining income through work, people would be more motivated to find work. According to the OW and ODSP acts, someone is only eligible if the budgetary requirements of the person and any dependents exceed their income and their assets are depleted to the allowed maximum. In addition, other forms of support are encouraged and sometimes necessary to be fully pursued before reliance on the states. Income exemption policies also set limits on the amount of outside income which can be acquired without affecting one's monthly allowance. Overpayments are charged if monthly employment exceeds the allowable income. So overall, these forms of clawback are meant to reduce or deter reliance on social assistance. So therefore, an additional problemization is the assumption that you need financial restrictions to decrease reliance on social assistance. What it actually ends up doing is deterring people from working because they're worried about all the rules and whether they're, they'd be charging overpayment or having to limit the amount of hours that they could actually work, even when they're in a part-time employment that may be not, not have some long-term stability. So the WPR approach also asks us what is silent in the specified policies. Clawback was created as an incentive to work. 
However, work-related expenses such as childcare, transportation, and clothing are not considered an income exemption. Childcare is only subsidized if the parent works full-time and during the weekdays. So if you're working and you need some, you need to pay for childcare and you have to use some of your working money to pay for it, that does not matter. They do not subtract that from the amount that they subtract from what they're actually gonna end let you keep. Housing authorities and social assistance actually base their clawbacks on the same dollar of earning employment earnings. So therefore, as income increases, rent also increases. And that's in the case of if your rent is subsidized, that means that you pay an amount of rent based on your income. These additional costs may therefore exceed the financial benefits of which are derived from working. Support for single parents is also lacking as these parents have less choices about entering the labor force and selecting less stressful employment. Secondary education is completely silent in all social assistance policy as that responsibility falls to another ministry. So if you seek as a loan to go to post-secondary education, you can no longer receive welfare. That loan is intended to also cover your living and household expenses. Government institutions, which are the primary bearers of human rights, have not embedded a human rights framework into social assistance policy, allowing citizens' rights to food, housing, and adequate standard of living. Another silence is the consideration of race or culture, which is more concerning in a country which boasts the highest percentage of foreign-born citizens than any other G8 country. As reflected in the many languages spoken, the plurality of life experiences, and the diversity of occupational engagements, Canada is indeed a cultural mosaic, but no considerations of race or culture in social assistance policies. So now I will shift the conversation to race and cultural specific occupations. So culture and race and ethnicity are terms associated with the global history of colonization. Race is often thought of as an immutable characteristic of an individual because Apparently, it's based on physical characteristics. However, it is immutable environmental forces, namely social considerations, conditions that gave rise to this social construction. Individual social status and achievement, which grew out of colonization and the enslavements of Africans and Native Americans, gave rise to racial dis differences. On the other hand, culture reflects the shared norms, beliefs, and values of people in a particular group. Diverse socio-demographic identities, including race, culture, ethnicity, and gender, are important influences on one's occupational patterns and choices. People from underrepresented populations have unique cultures which impact occupational opportunities and well-being. Recipients, see, Hannah um, in particular spoke about feeling that to get certain opportunities, she had to assimilate in terms of appearance. She describes herself as a natural girl who likes to wear natural hairstyles. In one circumstance, she was given an opportunity for a, a job interview through OW workshops. However, a staff member who was also black and also wore her hair natural approached her and told her that she respects that she's also a natural girl, but the job is looking for something different, suggesting that Hannah straighten her hair in order to have a better opportunity to get the job. Ultimately, she did not get the job, and the person who did get the job was also black but had weaved straight hair. So now, Hannah's thinking has changed. Although she loves being natural, when she goes in for interviews, she wears straight wigs. Hannah's experience of conforming to predominantly Caucasian beauty standards of long straight hair during job interviews demonstrates the racial nature of the labor market. Through welfare to work 
policies, there is a clear demonstration of the role that gender and race play in the labor market. Women are more likely than men to be employed in part-time labor market, and racialized women are more likely than their counterparts to be precariously employed. Occupational imbalance is used as a, as a population-based term to identify populations that do not share in labor and benefits of economic production due to experiences of segregation associated with gender, disability, race, or other forms of difference. So we have already, in occupational science, been acknowledging that, that these things do exist. So Hannah felt, again, that her race played a significant role in how she had been treated. When she became a treat teen mom, although her Caucasian stepmom had been a teen mom, she felt that she could not relate to her experience because of the color of her skin. This is in um, Hannah's words. As her stepmom had moved out of housing, was then well off living in a nice neighborhood. Hannah questioned whether her life would have turned out differently if she was not, if her stepmom was black. Would she have had the same opportunities? She also felt that being black meant there, there is an additional um, struggle. According to Hannah, black children and women are often misunderstood. These feelings come from her own experience as a child in care and having her own child, but not being allowed to raise her, while other white teen moms were given housing and the chance to raise their children. She believes CAS, is excessively concerned with black children and families. She had heard of non-black parents mistreating their children with no action by CAS. And CAS is the unit responsible for child welfare in Canada. Um, while CAS was overrepresented in black homes. However, despite the greater proportion of black children in the care of CAS, she recalls a lack of promoting successful black stories. As a majority of success stories she encountered were of adults who were like her stepmom, Caucasian. Most of the success, success stories she was presented of children in care growing up to have degrees and have careers were of white women. been asking them for help for the longest while but they say no we can't give any more help to you they only qualified for this you only qualify for that i said look i need someone to help me cook my son is not there all the time he goes to school so you could say i'm there by myself they said to get frozen stuff for meals meals on wheels and stuff like that it's crazy yes we eat fresh food so it's like the suggestion of frozen food it's not necessarily something that we want those things are very salty. And right now they're saying that my cholesterol is very high because eating those things, it's a lot of cholesterol and stuff. It's not good. I only cook on Sundays. I cook different things. Yesterday I made something back home that we call chop up. Eggplant, spinach, and okra. So given the significance of food preparation to Rachel, and when she says we, she's referring to the fact that we are both from the Caribbean. Um, her main request was to receive assistance from community services in the form of a designated worker to help her cook and prepare healthier and cultural meal. But for now, she just has to stick to what she has. There's also a need to understand that the types of occupations and what people choose to do and what they see as leisure are different depending on the place, depending on different cultural con um, attributes. Like Arya says, because in my culture, honestly, we don't do a lot. So I thought it was a bit hard for me when I come here to kind of adapt to that kind of culture because back home, you don't see it. Like somewhere say, okay, let's go do this, let's do that. It doesn't really, like, we don't do that. That's not part of it. But when I came here and I see most of my friends there, she always calls me and say, oh, let's go do something with the kids. Sometimes I find I don't want to do that because it's not what I want to do. But, you know, with pushing and the friends that I have because they do things, I said, okay. So this is how it is. So I have to adapt to that. 
you know, taking the kids out, doing something with them. So, I also want to consider how social assistance policies influence occupational possibilities. Social assistance monitors what recipients do and pushes recipients for punishing recipients for not following rules and regulation. Any significant changes in income is monitored and scrutinized through monthly check-ins. Traveling for longer than seven days without permission leads to being charged in an overpayment. More importantly, recipients fear being questioned on how they could afford to travel. So by restricting recipients' pursuit of higher occasion, directing them into employment, even though, even though this employment is most times not successful at leading to long-term independence, inadequately supporting people living with disabilities in employment um, pursuits, monitoring what they do and punishing them for not following rules and regulations, and not supporting engagement in leisure, self-care, and culturally significant um, occupations. All of that directs recipients into participating in occupations or not participating in occupations that they would have if they were not under the restrictions of social assistance policies. And I want to discuss some of the implications for occupational science. So I've brought in some awareness of the aspects of social assistance policy that shape and perpetuate inequity which lead to occupational justice for living in poverty. Social assistance policies promote occupations associated with entering the labor force. Other occupational policies, which are uh, possibilities which are tied to positive health and well being, are neglected, such as leisure, self care, and community participation. Occupational science can further explore this form of occupational marginalization and can take an active stand to bring up questions of justice, participation, and identity, which all become forefronted in poor populations. We also can play a role in raising the consciousness about the need to acknowledge the wide range of occupations, including those that are, um, that are culturally specific, as well as the right for every citizen to be able to fully participate in society. But where are we? Then, so when occupational science first started, um, I have to acknowledge that in the literature, alternate ways of doing and being that diverge from hege hegemonic white middle-class Euro-American conceptualization continue to be underrepresented. Um, historically, it has been conducted by white researchers, but continue, but this continues. Occupation was characterized as active, purposeful, and 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 meaningful, as well as contributing to constructions and expressions of self-identity, which reflects in a Western understanding of healthy and ideal way of life. This conceptualization is intuitively understood by the majority of Western occupational science as it aligns with their own understandings and experiences of the world. And if we think about it, this concept of occupation reflects only the perspectives of a minority of the global population. So recent publications in the Journal of Occupational Science, such as Begin 2020 and Johnson and Laverly, calls have acknowledged the lack of diversity in occupational science. Begin calls for anti-racism foc focus in occupational science through fundamental change to the institutionalized whiteness that pervades Western societies and is rooted in histories of colonial racism and slavery. Johnson and Laverly call for a more nuanced critical inquiry and reconceptualization of occupation as a site where racism is enacted and sustained. However, it is further acknowledged 
that the paucity of voices from non-white racial and cultural groups limits the possibilities for anti-racist responsiveness in scholarship. Magalhães challenges the discipline to undertake research that challenges, acknowledges, and celebrates the diversity in which people live and do to represent the plurality of life experiences. And if I think about publishing my own work, I wish that I actually acknowledged the cultural and racial dis um, differences in the experiences of receiving social assistance, which I didn't, even though the majority of my participants were Black. I didn't even state that in my, in my thesis I did, but in my publications I didn't. And that is because I didn't have the guidance or even the understanding then to, to realize or to even know that that is an important consideration that should be taken in any research that is being done. So where do I belong? I recognize my own status of being an immigrant, a woman, and belonging to a racial minority group directly influences how I see the world. As a black woman, I had to think about how my perception of race may influence interactions with participants, what I do research, and how participants' perception of me may influence how they interact with me. So in my research, I automatically understood cultural references of participants from the West Indies, Caribbean, because of our similarities and was better able to engage in conversation based on my own experiences. As a BIPOC occupational science researcher, witnessing occupational science um, sciences prioritization of research that moves beyond a Western paradigm and the hegemonic white discourse and the encouragement of perspective from researchers located outside the Western context has been encouraging. But as a BIPOC researcher that's located within a culturally heterogeneous and globally interconnected Western society, I feel the need to bear the knowledge production processes within occupational science and engage in critical reflection on the nature of the knowledge why, what, and whose knowledge, as well as the production of knowledge, how and by whom within the OS discipline, by centralizing race, culture, ethnicity, and the experimental knowledge of a person of people of color like myself. So I end with this quote, for OS discourse to reflect the diverse situated nature of occupation, there is a need to be critically reflective of what we do, what we choose not to report, on whom we train our scholarly gaze, who is protected and not protected as we do our work. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.